So I have been in pastoral ministry for about 17, 18 years, all right? And one of the things that I didn't realize when I first got into ministry is how many questions that would come to you as a pastor, all right? So I get asked a lot of questions. Anybody that's in pastoral ministry gets asked a lot of questions, their opinions on, on a variety of different topics. So one of, like, I mean, you politics, things that you find within the Bible, things that are spanning beyond things like that are happening in Ukraine. There's a lot of different things. And it's quite honoring that people come up asking you multiple questions about all these things that are happening in our world, in their own lives. And um, so you speak into the best, you, the best of your ability. You know what I'm saying? I don't know all the answers. So I tried to do the best that I can to speak into these things. But a few years ago, I was asked a question that I have yet to forget, but one that I have yet to also get after this as well as one that was a little shocking. And so I had a friend that came into the church office that I was at. She would help us out around the office every once in a while. And she posed this question to me, all right? It's a little comical now. And the moment I was like, I don't know what to do with this. So she asked me, when another guy walks into a room, is the first thing that pops into your head, I could take that guy? Like a fight, right? So I, I was shocked. I was like, hey, Andrea, I need you to, can you say that again? I don't know if I heard you right. And so she, she goes, it's not hard, Josh. The question is, when another guy walks into the room, is the first thought you have, I could take that guy. I was like, okay, I did. I heard her right. That wasn't like something I was making up. And so I was like, man, you got to help me understand where this is coming from. So come to find out, she's asking me this because her and her husband had a, a conversation the night before about the differences between men and women. And so she said that as she was talking through this with her husband, she said the first thought that she has when a girl walks in is about her beauty. Is she more beautiful than me? And her husband was like, I've never thought that. <laughs> Maybe if you're a guy, you can relate. I don't know. Um, but her, her, she was like, okay, well, if that's not your question, if that's not what goes in your mind, then what is the first thing that you think of when someone walks through the door? And he says, I think about if I could beat him up in a fight. Like, that's the first thing that comes into my mind. And she was like, that was wild to me. <laughs> and so she came in asking me, is this what happens in your mind? Or is my husband just crazy? Like, does he need counseling? And uh, I won't tell you my answer. Um, but essentially, here's what was happening, right? In both those scenarios, what is happening in both of them is it's a difference between how men and women size someone up whenever they come through the door. Women, or at least this lady in this account, the person, the lady that walks into the door, she's sizing her up, comparing against her own beauty and thinking I'm more beautiful than this other woman that's just walked into the room. The man thinks about physicality. Him walking in, could I take that guy? If there is a threat, could I take him down if I needed to? If not, what in the room do I need to grab to help me do so? You know, that's, what his, that's what's going on in his mind. So for better or worse, this has been something that has taken place for uh, much further than our lifetimes. This is something that's happened for quite some time. And in tonight's passage, we actually see Jesus in one of those situations. He's in one of those situations where he's being sized up by the group that he's trying 
to speak to and minister to. So we're looking, as we just read, the story of the paralytic, all right? So if this is your first time hearing this story, here's sort of what's happening. Jesus has started his ministry. He's gone through the baptism where the father broke through, tore through the heavens and spoke down over his son. He's started traveling around. He's preaching. There's been healings that have happened. He's been in Capernaum. He left. He's gone to other places, done the same thing. Now he's come back. All of this stuff that Jesus has been doing has gotten out, and so the crowds are now coming to Jesus because they're longing for these healings. They're longing for this teaching that Jesus has been doing. And so he's in Capernaum. He's teaching in this house, and the place is just absolutely packed. I mean, the Bible tells us that even the doorway into this house was packed to where people couldn't get in. I mean, it's standing room only. And word has gotten out. People are wanting to see people come and be healed. That's why the house is so decked out with people. And in this passage, we get a sense of the desperation that people are coming to Jesus in order to be healed. Because what we see here is that a paralytic has been brought by his friends on his mat. I mean, this is his home. He's a nomad. He lives on this mat wherever his friends take him. His friends have picked him up. They're carrying him to Jesus. They come to the house. They can't get through the doorway. And so they're not taken aback by this. They're not saying, okay, we just got to go back home. They're taking matters into their own hands. So they scale the house. They get up, get up on the roof. The Bible tells us they start digging through. So you have mud and sticks and branches that make a roof in the house at this point in time. So they're just tearing back the roof. They get a hole in the roof. They lower the man down on the mat before Jesus. And what the Bible tells us is that Jesus is moved by their faith. He's moved by their faith, and then he declares over the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And it's at this point in time that the room starts to size up Jesus. Because what the Bible tells us is that there's this group called the scribes. They're like religious lawyers. They hear what Jesus says, and they think, why does he speak like this? Essentially, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you can declare that someone's sins are forgiven? And the Bible tells us that Jesus perceives the scribes' thoughts and responds in such a way that leaves people astonished. Literally, what Mark reports, we have never seen anything like this. Now, essentially what the scribes are questioning is the type of authority that Jesus has. They're curious, what type of authority does this man think that he has? That's what they're sizing him up on is the authority by which he thinks he possesses. And so tonight, what I want us to wrestle through is we're thinking about who is this Jesus? Who is this man? Who does he think he is? Who did he proclaim himself to be? What did he say that he came to do I want us to look at the type of authority that Jesus possesses. And in this passage, you're going to find two things. The first one is this, is that Jesus discerns our deepest need. He discerns our deepest need. And then the second thing that you'll see here is that Jesus has the power to do something about our deepest need. So not only does he know our deepest problem in our life, but he also has the power or the authority to do something about it. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at this passage in two different sections. So the first section we'll see that the deepest need is what Jesus identifies in verses 1 through 5. And then 6 through 12, we're going to see that Jesus exudes the power to do something about this deepest problem that we all have. All right, so I'm going to read through verses 1 through 5 again to refresh our minds. As I'm reading through it, here's what I want you to look for, all right? I want you to look for both motive and then what actually happens or the action that happens in these first five verses, all right? So as I read this, try to think through these two things, and then we're going to address it as we talk through this part of the passage. So here we go. When, we, when he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. This is Jesus again. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. And since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. And seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So motive and then action. Notice the difference between the two here. All right, so the paralytic's motive in coming to Jesus is what? That he would be healed of his paralysis. Right? His four friends have carried him on the mat, brought him to Jesus. This is the whole point and reason why they've done it. This is why they have scaled the roof. This is why they've torn the hole in the roof. This is why they've lowered the man on the mat before Jesus. And this is the whole reason that they wanted to bring their friend to Jesus because they finally found somebody that can do something about their friend's inability to walk. They've seen, they've heard, they've watched all the things that are taking place in Jesus' life and ministry. And so they hear that he's back in town. And so they grab their friend. They're like, we're going to get you to Jesus. We're finally going to get you healed. This is the entire motive of why they bring their friend to Jesus. But look at the difference in the action that actually happens, at least in, in the initial stages, whenever they lower the man down to Jesus. The action Jesus takes, at least initially, is that he forgives the paralytic's sins. He's moved by the paralytic's friends, the links that they're willing to go in order to get their friend to Jesus. But Jesus declares the man's sins forgiven rather than healing his paralysis, his inability to walk. Now, we don't know what this man's sins are. It's not reported to us here. We read in other stories of Jesus in his account with other people, and he identifies their sins. So, for example, the woman at the well, if you if you're, know of this story, Jesus is in Samaria. This is a place that he's not supposed to be. He comes to a well in the middle of the day. He's thirsty. There's a woman that comes out. He asks for this woman to draw some water so he can have a drink. He engages in a conversation in the middle of it. He identifies she's had five husbands, and the man that she's now living with is not her husband. And she's astounded. This guy knows my whole entire life. He identifies the sins that are going on in her life. And another story that you can look at is the story of Zacchaeus. We have songs about this man, right? Like he's climbed the tree. He sees that Jesus has come into town. He's a tax collector. He's climbed the tree. He's a small statured man, so he has to get up above the crowds. Jesus is walking down in the midst of the crowds. He identifies Zacchaeus. 
He tells Zacchaeus that he's going to his house to eat that day. In the middle of all that's happening, Zacchaeus, he's a cheater. He's a liar. He's stolen from his own people. He stands up before Jesus. He owns this and says that he's going to double what he's taken from people. So there's other accounts that we see that Jesus has with people that he identifies the sins of those people. But we don't see that here. We don't see that this man's sins have been identified. Jesus says your, your sins are forgiven, but we have no idea. We have no idea what these sins really are. You might think, well, that's pretty confusing then. How are we supposed to know what's going on with this story? Well, I actually believe this is a very good corrective for us when we think about sin. It can be a little daunting in trying to figure out, think through what's going on in this life, man's life. But here's the problem that we usually have when we come to sin, all right? We have a, a smaller, minute view of sin rather than the whole picture. Usually when we think about sin, we think about breaking laws, the things that we have done wrong. I mean, the way that we're trying to teach our kids about sin in our house right now, we have three Ds. We've tried to just dumb it down, right? Like, I'm a dumb person. I needed to be dumbed down. So we're trying to help our kids think through, all right, how do we help them identify sin? How do we help them deal in correcting relationships when sin has entered into these relationships, mending these relationships? So you have disrespect, you have disobedience, and you have dishonesty, all right? We're pointing to these three Ds. You've broken the rules. Here's the ways that you've broken the rules. We have devotions that we read through with our boys that go through similar things. It's about breaking laws. But this is just the small part of the picture. It's not the grand view of what really is going on with sin. Because sin is not just breaking rules. It can often be where we take good things and then we turn them into God things. Where we view things as our savior that really have no position of being in the position of our savior. This is how much sin has affected us and our world that we take good things and we make them ultimate things. We place all of our hopes, we place all of our dreams, all of our wants, all of our desires on these particular things and then they can't bear the weight. They can't. And look, this is a sin issue. Whenever we place good things into the place of a God thing, this is sin. It's not just the breaking of rules. It's not just where we do things wrong. This is the way that sin has so infiltrated our hearts and our lives that we take good things and we make them bad things because we place them in positions that they ultimately are not supposed to be in. So let's take a look at this. Let's look how the paralytic might be doing this. And then I want us to take a look at how we do this today. We'll get down to the nitty gritty, all right? So here's kind of put yourself in the paralytic shoes in this scenario, all right? If you are dealing with paralysis like the, man, the paralytic in this story, what's the one thing that's consuming your thinking? It's walking, right? The one thing that you can't do is the thing that you put all of your hopes, all of your dreams on this particular thing. If you are this man, all your hopes, all your dreams rest on the ability to walk again. You're just thinking, if I could just walk again, if I could get my legs back, all of my discontent in this life would completely melt away. My unhappiness 
would be cured. People would no longer hear me complain about my life anymore because I would finally have the thing that's going to fix my life. Everything would be right again. Now, is walking a bad thing? Absolutely not. It's a good thing. That's how God's created our bodies to work, right? So if you lose it, man, it's a good thing to want this. But what this would happen in his life, he's hanging everything, his self-worth, he's hanging his ability to have meaning in this life, to have a good life. This, this is his vision for what a good life looks like, is to get his legs back. This is turning a good thing into a God thing. So the paralytic, as he's coming to Jesus, is likely saying, if I could just walk again, my whole life would be fixed. My life would be right again. Everything would be good. But what happens? Jesus looks at the paralytic man. He says, son, you have a deeper problem than that. You have a deeper problem than your broken legs. He looks at the man and he says, you have a sin problem. He says, I see your suffering. I see your broken legs. And you think this is your biggest problem in life, but I'm here to tell you, you have an even bigger problem than this. And it's a sin problem that's in your life. Now look, we do the exact same thing. Let me give you some examples, and maybe one of these will strike a chord with you. Take physical appearance. We do this with physical appearance. We look at our bodies in the mirror, and we look at past pictures, and we say, if I could just get back to how I used to look. If I, get, if I could get back to my ideal way. You look into the mirror and you don't like your nose. There's something that's going on with your ears. Like you got the Dumbo ears that you inherited from your grandparents. Like you look at it and you're like, man, if I could just get these fixed, I'll be something, you know? Like you're checking, your, like you're sizing yourself up in the mirror. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what's going on. Take your spouse or the spouse that you want. If I could just find the right person, if I could just find that person and I wouldn't feel lonely anymore, I finally feel accepted. I finally feel like I have a place where I could belong, someone I could talk to, someone that knows me and gets me. We do this with our profession. If I could just get my chance, if someone could finally see all the talent that is residing inside of me. If someone would just finally give me my shot, if I could finally get into that role, man, life would be different. You think about your finances, if I could finally get some financial margin in my life, if I could finally just breathe a little bit, the debt that feels like it's just insurmounting in my life, if I felt like I could finally just get some room to breathe, man, life would be so much better. Parenting, if I could finally get some space and some sleep, I'm just so dead tired all the time. Man, I, I feel like I'm up in the middle of the night three times a night. I just, 
I feel like I'm tired, I'm impatient, I have all these things going on. If I could finally just get some sleep, then man, I would be a whole different person. The type of house that you have, you feel like you're living on top of each other. Man, if I could just get a house that finally fits the size of my family, our whole house would just feel completely different. Life would just, all the problems that we've been dealing with, all the ways that we're running into each other, all the arguments that are happening, all the bickering, man, we finally have some like space that we could spread out and everything would be different. This is no different than what the man that has the broken legs is dealing with. He's taking good things, he's putting them in the place of God things, and they can't bear the weight. Just like the paralytic, we need to pay attention to Jesus' words where he says, your sins are forgiven. He looks at the paralytic, and look, what we need to do is we need to put ourselves in the place of the paralytic because what is happening is Jesus is looking at you. He says, look, I see you. The Bible says he was moved. He, he wasn't ignorant about what was happening before him, of what was happening with this man that's being lowered down through the hole in the roof. He knew exactly what was going on. Jesus is saying to the man, I see you. I see your hardship. I see the difficulty that is going on in your life. Look, we're going to get to this, but I, there's a deeper issue that's going on in your life and if you really want what you ultimately are desiring we have to deal with that issue before we deal with the apparent issue he's doing the same thing to you and me maybe I hit your thing on that list maybe I didn't you could fill in the blank for yourself but we're all this paralytic man and Jesus is looking at you and he's saying there's a deeper issue there's something that's more going on in your life that needs to be addressed. And he says, before we address your hardships, we need to address your sin issues. Another way of saying everything that we've done, I, Jesus is saying, if I address your apparent need rather than your pertinent need, you think life's problems will be resolved, but you're mistaken. You're mistaken. There's a deeper issue at play here, and it is your sin. For you to really get what you want, for we need to address that sin issue that's going on inside of you, and then we can address your paralysis. And here's why. What actually needs to be addressed in our life is not a suffering problem, but is a savior complex. That's ultimately what needs to be resolved in your life. Jesus is looking at us and he says, I want to turn these saviors that you have your hopes and your dreams set on and I want to highlight what they are. I want to show you their flaws so that you can see the only true savior that can actually meet your ultimate needs. That's what Jesus is doing here in this passage for the paralytic. And look, for you and me, we say, if I can just get blank, then all will be right in my life. But here's what happens. We get that said thing, and then it disappoints us. Maybe for a short little bit, it feels like it's fixed things, but in the long run, it doesn't work out. It can't live up to the hype. 
I mean, you look at your spouse and you, over time, you see all the flaws that come up in your marriage and you're like, man, this isn't what I thought it was gonna be. You look at your job, you finally get the position that you wanted. You were so fixated on the good things about that position that you couldn't even see the bad parts about it and so you're stressed, you're overwhelmed, you don't know how you're gonna keep moving forward. This thing that you put all of your hopes and dreams on now feels like this incredible weight that's coming down on top of you. You discover life's difficulties can't be resolved with a higher income. The kids that grow up and they leave the home and you long for the interruptions that you now complain about you, the things break in the new house that you wanted, the space that you could finally get, and now you're like, man, I don't know how we're gonna do this. These things, they disappoint you. All the things that you thought were gonna fix life's problems, the things that were good things that you put into God things, they fail you, and you're ultimately left worse than whenever you initially started. There's this quote, I know I've said it multiple times, but I think it just rings so true here. Jim Carrey says this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Look, the worst trick that God could play on us is that he gives us the things that we want and then leaves us in our disappointment. That's the most awful, evil thing that God could do in our lives. And Jesus knows the paralytic's deepest needs. And look, he knows your deepest need too. Jesus says, I see the apparent need. I see your suffering. I see all the hopes. I see all the dreams that you want. This isn't your greatest need though. Your greatest need is your sin problem and your savior complex. And look, he says, you need a savior that won't turn on you and that can't live up to the hype. And ultimately what Jesus is saying when he says, son, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I am that savior. He's saying, I'm the one. I'm the one that can actually do something with this deepest need that's going on in your life. And then he looks at the the man with the the paralyzed legs. He looks at you and me with the paralyzed hearts and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, we see that Jesus is a savior. He has the authority. He doesn't just identify our deepest need, but he also has the authority to do something about it. This is where the story gets good. All right, so let me reread again, verses six through 12, refresh our minds and we'll dive in. So here's what it says. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know, look, this is where I'm getting this, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately, he got up, he took the mat, and we went out in front of everyone. So the scribes here, Jesus declares the paralytic's sins are forgiven, and a conversation immediately begins in their heads and their hearts. Did he just say what I think he said? This is blasphemy. 
Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Who does Jesus think that he is? And then Jesus does three things that prove his authority to do something about our deepest need. Here they are. First, Jesus perceives their thoughts. Second, Jesus addresses their, ha- their thoughts. And then third, Jesus proves their thoughts. Jesus perceives their thoughts. He perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this. Now look, this isn't just recognizing the faces that are going on whenever he says something. This isn't just reading nonverbal cues that are happening. The Bible says that he perceived the thoughts that were going on in their hearts. Look, that is God-like authority. And whenever Jesus reads their hearts, he's showing us the type of authority that he truly has here on earth. But he doesn't just stay there. Secondly, Jesus addresses their thoughts. He says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Jesus proposes an ultimatum that aligns with the requirements that are needed to verify a prophet if you're looking throughout the Old Testament here. So we're in the New Testament, Old Testament, there would be people that God raises up, identifies that would be spokespeople for God to his people. And they would indicate things that were gonna happen in the future. And if they happened, then it verified their authority. And if it didn't happen, then they would be liable to death. You can, if you want to go check this, it's Deuteronomy 18, 22. The scribes, as Jesus is doing this, they would have known exactly what Jesus was doing. These are the people that know the scriptures better than anybody else. They know word for word what takes place in God's, his, his written word. And so, look, Jesus is standing there before them. He's placing this ultimatum, ultimately saying, I'm going to verify that I have the authority to do the thing that I just said that I was going to do, and I'm going about to prove it by backing up what I just said by predicting something that's going to happen. So not only does Jesus perceive their thoughts, he expresses an authority that nobody else on the face of the planet has. He addresses their thoughts. He places an ultimatum. He's putting himself on the line whenever he does this. And look, then he comes and he proves their thoughts. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus proves the thoughts that he read in the hearts of the scribes when they thought, who could this man be? What type of authority does he think he have? Is he God? Does he think he's God? Look, without saying the words, Jesus is saying, yeah, I am. I'm the God man. I'm the one that created and spoke this world into existence. I'm the one that knew you before you were even a thought in anybody else's minds. Before this world was created, I thought you up. He's saying, I'm the one that possesses the authority to forgive sins. I know everything that's going on in your life. I don't have to display it out in this passage. I know all the things that you've broken. I know all the good things that you've taken and put them into God places. I know everything about your life. And I can look at you and I can declare with authority that your sins are forgiven because I'm him. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
Now look, there's something that's really particular that's happening here too, all right? So the only other time that you see the word get up used throughout the rest of the gospel of Mark is at Jesus' resurrection. Now last week we looked at some of the word plays that Mark did when um, he's talking about Jesus' baptism and some of the different places that only these words were used within the gospel account or throughout the rest of the Bible. He's up to it again. So Mark, this is no coincidence, this is purposeful. Mark is saying there is a death penalty for your sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is, is death. Jesus is saying to the paralytic and to you and me that he'll take care of that sin problem. He'll take care of the death penalty that our sin deserves. He proves it by commanding the paralytic to get up, take his mat, and to go home. And what you see at the end of the, the gospel account of Mark is that Jesus gets up. He's died. He has stood in your place. The sin, the death penalty that your sin requires, Jesus stood in your place. In this moment, as he's speaking before the scribes, as he's looking at the paralytic, he's saying, sign me up. This is my role. This is why I've came. That sin problem that you're dealing with, that's why I'm here. The one that I'm calling out in your life right now, that's what I'm here to address. And look, there's no one but me. You you may look at this and you think, well, this proves that Jesus doesn't necessarily have to go die. He's looking at the man, he's saying, your sins are forgiven. No, that's not what happened. You're missing what's happening if that's where you go. Jesus is saying, look, I'm signing up. I know by me declaring telling this man to get up and walk with the ultimatum that I've just placed, this is gonna lead to my death. He's saying, I'm the perfect man. I am the perfect sacrifice. You can't die for your sins and deal with it, but I can. And so I'm gonna climb the tree that you should hang on, the death penalty for your sin that you deserved. I'm gonna bear it for you, but look, here's how powerful I am. Here's how authoritative I am that that grave can't contain me. And so at the end of the gospel of Mark, Jesus gets up. He opens the grave. He says, sin no longer has the say on your life. The thing that spoke over you, the thing that you're enslaved to, the thing that you took good things and put them into God things, I'm saying I'm dealing with all of that and it no longer has the say on your life. I'm the one that has you. I'm the one that owns you. I'm the one that's gonna deal with your life. You have hope. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now look. This demands a response. And there's only two options. You can't look at Jesus and say, I thought he was a really good teacher. And then leave it at that. I don't know if I really believe. I like some of the things he does. I don't, I don't know if I really believe that he's God himself. But man, I loved his vibe. I loved how he treated people. Like, You can't do that. You can't live in this middle ground. Look, it's either you reject Jesus as God or you receive him as God. You accept Jesus as Savior or you reject Jesus as Savior. Those are your two options. And so look, if you're in this place and you're like, I've never received Jesus as Savior, 
here's, here's the two ways. Here's the two things that you step forward and receive Jesus as Savior. The first one is that you repent. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. He's, it says this, Repentance is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. So look, if you're in this place and you're like, man, I do have a sin problem. You look at it, you own that, you come to God, you confess it, and you turn away from it. You're saying, this is the way that I used to live, but I don't want to live that way anymore. I'm going to turn from that, and I'm, I'm ready to live a different way. Here's Romans 2, 4, it puts it like this. If you look at Jesus and all that he's done for the paralytic man, everything that he speaks to our lives, this question I think is so perfect for us. Do you despise the riches of his kindness? Everything that he's done for you, the restraint and the patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Look, the right response here is you first, you repent. You say, God's been so kind to me that he did for me what I could not do for myself, that he knew every dark, deep thing about me and still chose to go and do the thing that I couldn't do for myself. So kind, so loving, more than anyone's ever done in my life. But you don't stop there. The second thing you do is that you put all your full dependence on him. You turn away from sin and these other saviors in your life, and then you turn to the Savior, which is Jesus Christ. So repentance is turning away from something. You're turning away from your sin, but whenever you turn from something, you have to turn to someone. And so whenever you turn away from your sin, you turn to Jesus. And you say, these things that I once depended on over here, these saviors that I once put my hopes and dreams on, I'm no longer doing that anymore. I now turn to Jesus, and he's the one that my hopes and my dreams and my wants and desires to reside with. In essence, you're looking at all the competing saviors in your life in the eye, and he says, he's the one who knows my deepest need, and he's the one that can do something about it. So I'm going with him. Acts 4.12 puts it perfectly for us. It says this, there's salvation in no one else. Meaning, there's no other savior that I can turn to that can do, what, do for me what Jesus has done for me. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. You look at Jesus and then you look at your, the other saviors that are competing for that position in your life and you look him in the eye and you say, I'm going with him. He's the one that won't fail me. He's the one that won't disappoint me. He's the one that knew the deepest, darkest things about me, the things that I thought were gonna bring rest, restoration in my life. He looked at me and said, no, you haven't gone deep enough. You have a sin issue and I've come here to deal with it. And he spoke in my life and then he actually had the power and authority to do something about it. You repent and then you place complete hope, complete faith, complete dependence on Jesus and Jesus alone. Look, finding Jesus as savior is like finding a good doctor. If you have a thing that's going on physically in your life 
and you can't figure it out, you, you think you have some ideas, when you go to a doctor and you begin sharing these things, and then he begins dictating those issues that are going on in your life better than you could dictate yourself, he identifies the ultimate sickness that's taking place in your life, and then he's able to bring healing and restoration to your life, that's a doctor that you stick with. And look, Jesus is the ultimate physician that looks at your life and he says, I know the deepest sickness that's in your life. I know the deepest issue that's residing in your life. I know your deepest problems. It's a sin problem. I've come to deal with it. I did it on the cross. I got up. Grave could not contain me. And now he's saying, I'm the one. Receive me as Savior. He's the only savior that never lets you down and can live up to the hype. And so look, give him your dependence because he knows your deepest need and he has the authority to do something about it. Let's pray.